Hello, it's Tuesday, the 23rd of January, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. A cold snap that descended on Korea continued for a second day, causing over 100 flight cancellations across the country. We'll have the latest updates in news briefing shortly. South Korea is set to compete in the lowest ever number of team ball sports at the Olympics this year. We discuss why this may be happening and what it has to do with the low birth rate for our in-depth today. And coming up for Touch Basin's Hole, we'll be meeting Korean-American golfer Chan Kim, who made his debut on the PGA Tour this month at 33 years of age. We have all that and more on today's Career 24. The cold wave that struck the nation on Monday persisted into Tuesday, causing temperatures to drop even further. The conditions which grounded flights across the country are forecast to last until Thursday. Our KBS World Radio news editor Gui Jin joins us in the studio now to bring us the latest on the Arctic chill, as well as our other headlines of the day. Hijin, hello. Hello, Zhang. So can you give us the latest weather update and the damages seen so far? Well, the Korea Meteorological Administration reported that uh, Tuesday morning lows as low, uh, cold as minus 15 degrees Celsius were would give way to daytime highs of some four degrees lower than Mondays at uh, minus nine to one above, with minus seven degrees forecast for Seoul. The cold front also brought snowfall with as much as 50 centimetres expected for Jeju Island until Wednesday, while the western provinces were likely to receive five to 15 centimetres in certain areas. The accumulation resulted in the cancellation of 122 flights, according to the Central Disaster and Safety Countermeasures headquarters, including 76 in Jeju and 24 at Kimpo Airport. The adverse conditions also affected seafaring travellers, with 93 vessels unable to set sail on uh, 71 routes, while numerous roads and hiking trails were closed. The frigid conditions are expected to continue into Wednesday and Thursday before beginning to let up on Friday. Meanwhile, a fire broke out at a large fisheries market in Sacheon, South Chungcheong province late Monday, burning down 227 shops but thankfully without any casualties. Can you give us more details? Well, according to fire authorities, the blaze began at around 11.08pm Monday, prompting the mobilisation of 361 firefighters and 45 firefighting apparatus, with major flames under control two hours later. The fire was completely extinguished by 7.55am Tuesday. Just before midnight, Sochon County officials sent out text notifications to county residents, warning them them to uh, evacuate the premises due to a poisonous gas leak near the market. With an investigation into the cause of the fire and scope of the property damage underway, Interior Minister Lee Sang-min vowed to consider a special subsidy tax for the region to assist in a swift recovery. And I understand that President Yoon Sang-yeol and the People Power Party Chairman Han Dong-un met at the site of the Sachan fire amid reports of a rift between the two sides. Indeed, Yoon and Han together inspected on Thursday the damage wreaked by the uh, Sachan market fire. President Yoon did not have an official schedule for the day but decided to visit the site after receiving reports of the damage while Han made adjustments to his schedule and arrived at the scene around the same time. The meeting comes two days after reports that 
the top office had ordered the PPP chief to step down from his post only to be rebuffed. Han, only a, uh, Han who accompanied Yun back to Seoul on the latter's exclusive train, told reporters at Seoul Station that he has the utmost respect to, uh, for the president and that he told him that he will exert every effort to bolster the PPP in the lead-up to the elections to help improve the lives of the people. Still, the main opposition Democratic Party chair Lee Jae-myung has slammed President Yoon for intervening in party affairs with an eye for the general elections. This in response to the top office demanding that uh, the PPP's hands step down. Can you explain? Well, the DP chair issued the censure on Monday in a meeting with reporters at the National Assembly when asked to comment on the presidential office's instruction that uh, Han resign. He said that the uh, political party activities and elections should remain distinct from the duties of public officials. But there are, unfortunately, identifiable problems such as intervention in election build-up as well as violations of the obligation to remain politi- uh, politically neutral. In his remarks for the party's uh, Supreme Council meeting earlier on Monday, the DP chair said the government and the ruling party should uh, prioritise the people's lively- uh, livelihoods first instead of establishing factions supportive of either the president or the party. Party chair. Uh, let's turn to some other headlines now. The Gyeonggi Nambu Provincial Police raided the Incheon Police over suspicions of leaking information about an investigation into the alleged drug use by the late actor Lee Sung-yoon. Can you tell us more? Well, the raid of Incheon Metropolitan Police Drug Crime Investigation Unit that conducted the probe into the late actor took place between 10am and 5pm on Monday with local media outlet uh, that reported on the case also included in the search warrant. The Gyeonggi Nambu Police have reportedly obtained the mobile phones of the investigators and their case files which will be subject to an analysis to determine whether information was leaked by the Incheon police to the media outlet. On January 15th, the Incheon division requested the Gyeonggi Nambu department to investigate the alleged leak amid concern over a lack of fairness with an internal inspection. Yi's alleged drug use first made news on October 19th, five days after he was booked as a suspect in the drug case and some two months before he was found dead by apparent suicide on December 27th, following three police summons for which the media was present outside. Let's turn to some international news now. Russia has blamed the West for its continued war in Ukraine as it claimed that weapons assistance for Kyiv is prolonging the war. What more have they said? Well, Moscow's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov made the argument on Monday at the UN Security Council session at the UN headquarters in New York that convened at the request of Russia to discuss global peace and security threats related to the situation in Ukraine. Lavrov, who travelled to New York to address the council, claimed that arms support by West Western countries is hindering peace negotiations and those nations are using Ukraine to fight and weaken Russia without sacrificing the lives of their own soldiers. Before the meeting, diplomats from dozens of countries held a press conference and issued a joint statement criticising the position as hypocrisy. In the statement, the ambassadors of 46 countries and the European Union said Monday's UNSC meeting is an attempt by Russia to divert attention from its aggression against Ukraine calling on Moscow to stop the war and withdraw its troop from Ukrainian territory. In other news, South Korea's up-and-coming bobslayer So Jae-hwan has grabbed South Korea's first ever gold medal in a sledding event 
in the Winter Youth Olympics. Can you tell us more? Well, Seoul came in first on Tuesday in the men's monobob competitions in bobsleigh, led by the Alpen- uh, uh, held at the Alpensia Sliding Centre with a combined score of 1 minute and 48.63 seconds. Tuesday's gold is the second for South Korea in the fourth Winter Youth Olympics, following the one that short uh, track speed skating scar- star Chujehi uh, grabbed last Saturday. In particular, Seoul's gold medal is the first that South Korea has won in a sledding event uh, since it first began to uh, take part in the Youth Olympics. And finally, turning to the Summer Olympics, the continuing struggle of South Korean national teams in ball sports qualifiers for the 2024 Paris Olympics may result in the lowest number of athletes attending the Games in nearly half a century. Can you tell us more? Yes, as of Tuesday, the only bald sport discipline South Korea has qualified for in the upcoming Summer Games is women's handball. The men's football team will look to qualify for the Paris Games during the Asian Football Confederation Under-23 Asian Cup to be held in Qatar in April, continuing its unbroken streak of appearances that began with the 1988 Seoul Summer Olympics. Uh, With a majority of ball games being team sports, the failure by a number of teams teams to qualify will have a noticeable impact on the number of athletes representing the country in the Summer Games. And yes, we'll talk more about the situation for our in-depth next. In the meantime, we wrap up our news briefing here. Heejin, thank you for those updates. Thank you. On Sunday, the South Korean men's national field hockey team failed to book their ticket to the 2024 Paris Olympics after losing to Ireland in a qualifying tournament. As disappointing as this result was, it is the latest in a far worrying trend for Korean sport. South Korea has failed to qualify for almost every team ball sports event this year, including both men and women's basketball, women's football and men's handball. And the future looks increasingly bleak as well. A major concern is the shrinking talent pool due to the nation's ultra-low birth rate. Looking into this issue has been sports reporter Park Kang-hyun from the Joseon Yilbo newspaper who has joined us in the studio today for our in-depth to tell us what he has found. Mr Park, hello. It's uh, good to have you back on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so first, tell us about how Korea is faring when it comes to ball game sports for the upcoming Paris Olympics. Which sports have South Korea qualified for and which have Korea failed for? Uh, currently, uh, it's a surprise. There is only one that has made it to Paris so far, and that's women's handball. Uh, they secured a spot through the Asian Qualification Tournament in Hiroshima, Japan last year during August. I was fortunate enough to be there to witness it. And men's football will try to secure their spot in upcoming April at the Under-23 Asian Cup. Um, However, others were not so fortunate. Uh, Men and women's basketball uh, have not qualified. Men and women's volleyball are also virtually out. Um, And I say virtually because both... Teams are waiting for their Olympic tickets that will be handed out based on their world rankings. But both men, which is number 28 in the world, and women's, which is 
number 40 in the world, uh, both teams' rankings are too low to have a chance at gaining their tickets. And furthermore, men's handball, women's football, men and women's field hockey also don't have their places in the Olympics. Men's hockey just missed their chance at the qualifiers in Valencia, Spain by placing in fourth place, uh, losing to Ireland at the third and fourth place match. In case you were wondering, um, what about baseball? Where's baseball? Um, baseball will, is not an event in Paris. Uh, it'll be back in the 2028 Los Angeles Olympics. I see. So then how does this situation compare to past Olympics? How much of a, a decrease is this for Korea? So based on the calculations, um, at most there will be two ball game national teams at Paris. Uh, women's handball, which have qualified, and men's football, which is trying to qualify. Uh, this will be the lowest ever. Um, in the Tokyo Olympics three years ago, there were men's football, women's basketball, volleyball, handball. Baseball was also an event. In London, 12 years ago, there were men's football, women's volleyball, men and women's handball, men and women's field hockey. So this is quite a shock. Um, mm. I think we all remember the passion the women's volleyball team showed at Tokyo sure. uh, when they made it to the semifinals by beating Japan and Turkey. But I don't want to be glim or anything, but I don't think there will be as many dramas at Paris this year. Indeed. So this is certainly a worrying trend. Uh, we seem to be qualifying for far fewer ball sports than the past. The question then is, why is that? Uh, Mr. Park, what have you found in your reporting that seems to be the cause for this uh, downward trend? Um, it's a multifaceted problem involving disparity in average income and recognition among different ball sports. But based on my uh, reports and observations, I think the main cause is a lack of a stable athlete pool. Right, a lack of stable athlete pool. And when we say that, there can be many reasons for that, of course. But actually, one of the biggest contributing factors at the moment, one of the biggest concerns seems to be South Korea's world record low birth rates, right? Just how serious... Uh, is the decline in the number of young athletes at the moment? And what sort of situations have you seen? Well, I think we all know that the birth rate of Korea entered the zero phase in 2018. And in 2022, the birth rate was 0.78. Right. The lowest in the world. Um, this decline in population seems to be spilling over to the number of student athletes as well. Um, let's look at volleyball first. Um, these are numbers that I found uh, from the official website of the Korean Sport and Olympic Committee. Um, in 2005, there were a total of 2,401 registered volleyball players uh, from elementary school to college. In 2023, there were 2,255. So about 150 players disappeared. And I went to a renowned uh, boys' volleyball high school last month during their winter training session. And guess how many athletes there were? Uh, there were only eight. 
Um, of course, four seniors awaiting their graduation did not participate, but still, uh, this was a shock considering that this school uh, had produced so many national team players and national team managers. Um, now, let's look at basketball. In 2005, there were 2,657 players. In 2023, there were 2,236. More than 400 players vanished. Um, think how many teams could have been made. I mean, this may not seem as much. Right. Uh, considering that the ones that, con- that contribute to the student-athlete's population... Uh, were kids that were born during the 400,000 baby era. Mm. But now, there are only about 200,000 babies being born. So, 10 years from now, I think this numbers, these numbers could basically decrease to even about... Even further. Even further to about uh, half of what it is now. Right, that is very... Uh, concerning, very stark warning. So already we're seeing schools uh, that used to produce the nation's best athletes suddenly struggling to even form a single team. Eight athletes at that uh, boys of volleyball high school. You need six just to form a team. So you can't even have a a B team essentially to practice against. So that is uh, the situation we find ourselves in. But I would imagine that the low birth rate is a problem that would affect all kind of sports, but why are ball game sports affected more, it seems? Well, I think it's because the ball game sports are basically irreplaceable. Um, you know, only humans can physically participate in these sports. There are neither machines nor artificial intelligence uh, technology that can replace them. Mm. Uh, no babies mean no athletes, and no athletes mean no teams. Right. Um, It's, yeah, also in Korea, I think it's considered more difficult to succeed in sports than through, say, um, studying. Um, Parents uh, who at most have two babies nowadays uh, seem to no longer want to put their children at risk uh, getting them involved in sports, which is which seems too difficult to succeed in. I see. So it's not just the low birth rate issue you're saying, but perhaps families are less inclined for their children to go down the path of sports as well. So coupled together, uh, that is making the situation uh, even more uh, worse, uh, something else that has perhaps changed. Understand that this doesn't just affect the number of athletes that are coming up through the systems, but it's also negatively affecting coaching as well. Can you explain how the situation is affecting coaches and the standard of uh, coaching given to aspiring young athletes? Yes, um, coaches and managers, I found, seem to have a new role nowadays. They don't just coach or manage their teams. The one that I met uh, last month uh, basically called himself a salesperson. That's his new job. Hmm. Um, It's because he has to not only train his athletes, but he has to go around um, door-to-door almost, begging the parents to get their kids to enroll, to become potential athletes um, into his team. Um, He said that he started uh, his job about 20 years ago. He thought that 
his job and his status would get better as the years progressed. But um, he never imagined 20 years later that he'd have to worry about the number of athletes Mm. rather than the core skills of athletes. So everybody, everybody is getting affected uh, by this uh, plummeting birth rate. Right, so the situation is happening because the responsibility of recruiting potential young stars uh, to their schools seems to fall on coaches in many places as well. So amid the dwindling pool, the coaches are having to spend less of their time coaching and more on finding uh, prospects to try and first just fill the numbers to form a team, but also to compete for the best talent that remains. And if coaching standards go down, that means uh, less success for these sports as well. So the situation looks bleak, especially with the low birth rate issue showing no signs of improving. The next question becomes, what can be done about it? How can we mitigate the impact of Korea's low birth rates on the nation's sports? Well, it's, it's a societal issue with no concrete solution and I'm no expert on uh, this fight against the low birth rate, but I think sports-wise, um, I think all the associations uh, related to the various ball games should lead the discussion on how to get young talents into the games. Um, I honestly believe that these associations should be having meetings every week regarding this topic because um, if the fundamentals go down, uh, there will be no dramas anymore. Um, Hmm. They should really put everything on the table, even those uh, that had been regarded as unimaginable. Um, What kind of incentives could be given to these players that get themselves into these sports? How to raise the treatments of national team players? And I think even financial solutions uh, should come to... uh, onto the table and and I believe that uh, a solution regarding how to promote the number of exchanges with various foreign teams should also uh, be regarded as well and actually the Korean Volleyball Association had a meeting after the Asian Games last year Um, the Asian Games was a failure for the volleyball national team both men and women's national team did not get a medal and this had not happened in say more than 60 years Um, they had a meeting they discussed uh, all these topics but the most important part was missing what can be done about it right and I haven't heard about any additional meetings uh, that they had done so since then right so they should get talking And talking should, I think, should uh, foster some solutions to be born. So while there might be some awareness about this problem, so far there seems to be uh, little action that has been taken. It does make me wonder, South Korea is not the only country that's suffering from a low birth rate. There are uh, many other countries, especially in the developed world, where the birth rate is slowing. How are they coping with the situation? Is there anything that South Korea can uh, learn from uh, other countries in fostering and reviving uh, Korean professional sports? 
Well, I think uh, Korea might actually become a role model since it's experiencing the lowest birth rate in the world, Right. Uh, paradoxically. But um, some things that I think we can uh, gain from uh, other countries, some things that we can benchmark um, are many professional teams in Europe and America, unlike the ones in Korea, have a stable youth club. Um, these... Kids in these youth clubs grow to enter the professional clubs where they started. Um, many football players of South Korea are are these. Um, mm. Lee Kang-in, Son Heung-min, they all were involved in these youth clubs of many professional uh, football clubs. So I think trying to get these youth clubs rooted in Korean team sports and fostering competition among them by making a league or making uh, a more renowned tournament, a more recognizable tournament, right. might be able to bring some fresh talents um, into this sports world. Right, so rather than just going through schools, which they do at the moment here in Korea. So I guess there might not be much lessons that Korea can learn from other countries at the moment because the low birth rate crisis is so severe in Korea. Of course, sports is perhaps not the most pressing matter when it comes to issues related to the low birth rate issue, but it's looking like it could be a very unfortunate side effect. Uplifting memories such as the Korean women's handball teams uh, winning medals at the Olympics, or even uh, Korea's exciting run to the semifinals in the women's volleyball at the Tokyo Olympics, as you mentioned, may be something we no longer see. They provided moments of joy for Korea, offering... a happy diversion and respite, often during troubled times. I'm sure there still will be moments of glory, especially for individual sports, but uh, the collective joy of team sports could become much rarer indeed. Well, Mr Park, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this situation today. We'll leave it there. We've been speaking to reporter Park Kang-yan from Chosun Yilbo. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Korea24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 14.26 points, or 0.58% on Tuesday, to close the day at 2,478.61. The tech-heavy KOSDAQ also rose, gaining 0.42 points, or 0.05%, to close at 840.11. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 5.51 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,333.41. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segment, where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have with us in the studio contributor Diane Yu. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jango. Let's get into our first story. What do you have for us? Recently, there's one rather weird trend that's been on the rise on various social media platforms. Eating fried starch toothpicks. As of Tuesday, if you search fried starch toothpicks on social media, dozens of mukbang or eating shows will appear. Although the ingredients are edible, there are safety concerns as the product is not manufactured for eating. 
Okay, so these are green toothpicks. They mm-hmm. often find in restaurants in Korea. Yeah. They look plastic, but they are in fact made of cornstarch, mm-hmm. which is great because they're biodegradable and environmentally friendly. Right. But you're saying that there is a trend of frying them and eating them. How did that come yes. about? This type of video first appeared on a video platform about seven years ago. Some people fry toothpicks and ate them. And with the recent popularity of short form content, it has become a full fledged trend among millennials and Generation Zs. Most videos show people frying toothpicks in oil until crispy and eating them right away or pouring cheese or hot sauce on them. Also, videos of people putting toothpicks in boiling water to make it like soft jelly or sugarcoating it like Tanghulu or Appeared. It was also discussed on television. One female comedian said on air that she tried the food and it was delicious. She even recommended others to try the fried toothpicks at home. Right, I've seen the videos as well. Mm. When you fry them, the sticks, they puff up and yeah. contort. Right. And they actually do end up looking like snacks, yeah. essentially. Right. The closest thing they <laughs> remind me of are twiglets for yeah. those who know their British snacks, mm-hmm. but green, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess a US comparison might be some uh, skinny cheese puffs or something like that. Yeah. But, but anyway, <laughs> the important thing is, mm. you said there are safety concerns, though. Right. The followers of this trend are saying that it's safe to eat as toothpicks are made fr- of edible ingredients, and they're not wrong. In fact, the main ingredient of those toothpicks is mostly corn or potato starch. However, experts say that since it's not a product made for human consumption, one should refrain from consuming it. Manufacturers of starch toothpicks also put warnings on their products such as do not eat although it's harmless to human body and do not use for purposes other than intended. An official from the Ministry of Food and Drug Safety said that they recommend not frying it or eating it because it's not intended for food use. Right, only because you can eat something doesn't mean that you should. Exactly. A bizarre social media trend that Mm. is certainly not recommended. Let's continue on to our second story, Audia for us. Korean children's books author Igumi has made it to the list of finalists for the highly esteemed Hans Christian Andersen Award in the author's category. Also called the Andersen Award, the International Board on Books for Young People named E along with five other authors over the weekend through their website. Other nominees include authors from various countries like Brazil, Austria, Belgium, Finland, and the Netherlands. E is the first Korean writer to be shortlisted in the author's category for this award. And for your reference, artist Isuji was the first Korean to win this prestigious award for illustration in 2022. Right, I think our listeners will know Igumi best as the author of The Picture Bride, mm. a book we reviewed twice actually, both the Korean and English translation by An Sanje. She also has another book in English called uh, Can't I Go Instead, also translated by An. Mm. Uh, and this is quite a prestigious prize to be shortlisted for the Hans Christensen Andersen Award. Can right. you tell us more about it? Established in 1956, the Hans Christian Andersen Award takes its name from the 19th century Danish author Hans Christian Andersen. Often referred to as the Nobel Prize for Children's Literature, the Andersen Award bestows its highest honors upon an author and an illustrator, respectively, and it gives awards every two years. A panel of international judges assesses the accomplishments of authors who have been recommended to the IBBY, ultimately selecting six individuals for the shortlist and determining the final winner. And this year, the shortlisted names were chosen from a pool of 59 nominations spanning 33 countries. The winners will be announced at the Bologna Children's Book Fair, which is being held in Italy for four days starting April 8th. 
Right, so the Korean Bureau of the IBBY recommended E4 the shortlist. Did they explain the reason why? Yes, the Korean Bureau of IBBY said that they nominated E's work as her stories could bring out universal emotions in foreign readers while revealing Korea's uniqueness. And added that E's works are like watching an exciting drama and there's no other way, better way to make readers fall in love with a work than such a storyline. Yes, the picture ride was certainly recommended by both of our contributors, Anton Her and Barry Welsh. Mm. A very moving novel that was described as a young adult book, but I would say that it moved adult readers uh, just as much. A very worthy nomination, and we'll mm. see if she manages to win the main award soon in April. Right. Let's continue on to our third story. What else do you have for us today? Cultural heritages representing the valuable legacy from our predecessors encapsulate the wisdom of life reflecting our historical journey. Some of these heritages, such as palaces and tombs, are tangible, while some are intangible, like traditional dances and craftsmanship. On Monday, the Cultural Heritage Administration announced that it plans to recognize Kim Myung-hee as the holder of the National Intangible Heritage for the Master Artisan of Jade, or called Okjang in Korean. A master artisan of jade. Yes. That sounds fascinating. Tell mm. us more about Okjang. Uh, Okjang denotes the expertise in jade carving or an artisan possessing such a skill. Popular among Asians, jade, often adorned with gold and silver, served as a cherished gemstone. It was utilized as an accessory symbolizing the virtues of courage, benevolence, wisdom, rectitude, and honesty. Additionally, jade found diverse applications, including the crafting of ceremonial utensils, accessories signifying social status, jade chimes, medicinal materials, and medical tools. The process of jade crafting, carrying, design, cutting, formation, detailed carving, and lustering demands meticulous handling and exceptional artistic skills. Yes, and master artisan Kim has been crafting exquisite jade pieces for more than five decades, I understand. That's correct. Master artisan Kim entered the profession as a disciple of Master Kim Jae-hwan in 1970 and inherited his skills. With a dedication spanning approximately 53 years, he has continually refined his expertise in jade processing. The Cultural Heritage Administration explained that after conducting a written examination and filled in investigation last year to confirm the core craftsmanship of Okjang, Master Kim met the requirements to be recognized as an Okjang holder. The final decision will be made after deliberation by the Intangible Cultural Heritage Committee. Well, if it's gotten this far in the process, he will most likely get the recognition now. And Definitely. for anyone who can, they should look up his works because mm-hmm. his pieces really are quite incredible. Yeah. Right, that wraps up today's career trending. And this is also, unfortunately, where we say goodbye to Diane one last time. Yes, I understand is. this is your last broadcast with us mm-hmm. for the time being. Right. Well, I'm very sad to see you go, but I just want to say thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully we will see you again. Mine as well. And thank you, Team Korea 24. And thank you, all the listeners. Yes, until then, take care. And uh, thank you once again. All right, thank you. J.
January 11th this year, Korean-American golfer Chan Kim made his first ever start on the PGA Tour at the ripe age of 33. This comes after stints on tours all over the world, including the Canadian Tour, the European Challenge Tour, the Asia Tour, the Japan Tour and the Corn Ferry Tour in the US. This earned him the nickname Mr. Worldwide in pro golf circles. He eventually earned his ticket to the PGA Tour after clinching second place on the Corn Ferry Tour standings last year. But despite his belated arrival on the Premier Circuit, he was chosen by Sports Illustrated as one of the breakout golfers to watch in 2024. He joins us now via video call to tell us about his story for this week's Touch Base in Seoul. Mr Kim, hello and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us. First of all, congratulations on your PGA Tour qualification. You've already now played two events, including one in Hawaii, where you grew up. How does it feel to be out there Mm -hmm. now on the circuit? Yeah, um, you know, it's always been a really big goal of mine. And um, to finally achieve it, um, obviously, no words can express how happy I am and how grateful I am. Um, You know, I, I... Sony was my first event. I had played the event before, just not as a full member on the PGA Tour. And so um, for my first tournament as a, as an official PGA Tour member to be back where I grew up, um, it was very special. Um, didn't re- didn't make the cut. I, I missed by one, but I had a really good week last week. And I'm um, looking forward to carrying that over into this week at Torrey Pines. Sure. Of course, the results for uh, your first outing on the PGA Tour wasn't what you had hoped. But still, I'm sure your family and friends must have been delighted. I understand your childhood golf coach, who's now in his late 80s, came out onto the course to watch you make your uh, debut as well a couple of weeks ago. He did. Um, Les, coach Les Uihara, um, he's the first coach I had when I grew up and started playing golf. Um, he came out actually to do an in- interview with me for the PJ tour at the all golf course, which is where I grew up playing. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was very special to have him there. I had a whole bunch of family friends out there. Some of my friends that we play, I played junior golf with out in Hawaii. And so, yeah, it was, it was a very, very special event. And that's one event I will probably play every year. Um, if I get the opportunity to. Indeed. And as I mentioned at the start, you've certainly come the long way around to get to the PGA Tour. So you're born in Suwon, Korea, but you grew up in Hawaii before playing collegiate golf in Arizona. But then you spent the next 12 years playing on tours overseas. So what took you on that journey? What made you go overseas to find your opportunities, including most notably in Japan, where you spent, I believe, uh, seven seasons out there, right? Uh, Eight. Eight seasons, I believe it might be seven. Right. Um, I, I've actually lost count as well. So, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, I've tried Corn Ferry Tour Q School, which was web.com uh, back in the day. I've tried it many times. Um, didn't make it through, uh, unfortunately, but I didn't want to waste, you know, a full season waiting around, waiting for my next opportunity. I wanted to make sure that I could at least play on some tour. Um, to gain some experience, some knowledge, um, playing against some of the best in the world. And I honestly believe that that's one of the reasons that has helped me to um, elevate my game to get on the PGA Tour. 
Right. I, I imagine, yes, you would have had a lot of interesting experiences out there. But what was that like? I'm sure there must have been some tough days as well. Um, the traveling's always been tough, especially on the European Challenge Tour. And, um, you know, for Japan, we had a lot of tournaments in a row. So I would stay there for consecutive weeks, consecutive months. Um, so that wasn't too bad. Uh, when I played the Asian Tour, I was also playing the European Challenge Tour. And sometimes I would have to fly from Asia to Europe and fly back and play the week after in Asia. So um that was obviously very very tough uh, sometimes you know it's hard to go out and and eat i'm not a very picky eater but um there was just some choices that i didn't really like and um you know i i choose to go to mcdonald's rather than have dinner <laughs> at some restaurants so um those are those are pretty tough um you know the trap the traveling was definitely number one thing um having to try and get a visa every week for every tournament and um and then you know the cost of flying over there the hotel fees and uh and whatnot so it you know if it wasn't for my parents supporting me uh throughout all those years i honestly don't think i would have even made it this close um so yeah i'm very thankful for my for my parents and for their support throughout the years and hopefully you know i can i can start repaying them back Right. Despite all those uh, hardships, you did find success, particularly in Japan, notably winning eight times out there. Uh, but then what you made, what made you want to leave the Japan tour and give uh, Q School another shot, the qualifying tournament in the US, which eventually put you on the path to the uh, developmental Corn Ferry tour? Yeah, so um, what I what my goal was in Japan was to try and get my world ranking inside the top 50 and try to get a couple of starts on the PGA Tour um, and try and get on the PGA Tour that way. Um, and at the end of 2021, uh, 2022, excuse me, um, the world ranking points changed, the whole system changed. Um, the corporate tour actually went from 25 cards to 30 cards. And so I just felt like it was a great opportunity. I was going to go straight to final stage anyways. And, um, you know, I figured, you know, one year of sacrifice on the corporate Ferry Tour to try and get my PGA Tour card is not a bad deal at all, um, especially, like I said, with 30 cards. And um, I decided that I wanted to make that leap and, and give it a go. And I it was kind of like a last straw thing for me. Um I, I kind of told myself, okay, if I may give myself two more chances at the Corn Ferry Tour Q School, and if I don't make it, I may just play in Japan full time. You know, it was enough to make a decent living. And um, I got married last December, so, or 2022, December. And um, yeah, I, ne I needed a stable income, and um, Japan was providing that um, very well. And so I. You know, it was a tough decision, but I, I knew that, you know, I, I wanted to play on the PGA Tour and, and I had to come and risk it and try it. Right. Your dream ultimately was the PGA Tour. Uh, but even on the Corn Ferry Tour, you said uh, it was perhaps wasn't too much of a risk because you wanted to, you felt confident. But I understand even that wasn't plain sailing. You were outside the top 50 on the uh, Corn Ferry Tour points list at one point. But then you eventually got back-to-back -back, uh, wins in two events uh, and then locked up your PGA Tour through that and finished second. What was that period like where you were even at risk of losing your uh, Corn Ferry Tour status? Yeah, it was, 
was a wracking. Um, I believe we had a seven week stretch. I'd missed, I made the first cut that I missed three in a row. And at that point, um, you're basically fighting to keep your status, not even, you know, really focusing on the PJ tour card. I knew I wasn't far off. I could see the points list. Um, my caddy at the time had the predictions for points to get your PGA tour card. So I knew how far, how many points I needed, how far off I was. Um, so, uh, went over, took a lesson over in Vegas from the Butch Harmon schools, um, with Nick Helwig, um, two days, I believe two hours a day, flew over to Omaha, had one day to practice and then went straight to the tournament, made the cut, which was a huge relief. I, I think I finished 60 something, but just to make the cut for me, you know, it was towards the right direction. And the week after I played three solid rounds to start and that final round, the back nine, um, it was kind of like I was back in Japan playing and trying to win a golf tournament. Uh, those instincts kind of kicked in and, uh, you know, I knew I needed to make birdies, uh, got those birdies when I needed to. And, um, I think that kind of fueled the fire and helped me the next week in Boise, um, where I made 28 birdies, I believe, and no bogeys, uh, which is even, you know, for anybody, that's a pretty ridiculous set, I guess. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, just winning that first event in New Jersey kind of moved me to, I believe, 12th on the points list at that point. And so it took a lot of pressure off of me, off of my game. And the last couple events, I could just kind of, you know, see if I could improve on those uh, point standings. Um, I The last event at Victoria National um, in Evansville, Indiana, was probably the most pressure-packed tournament because I was so close to being, a, you know, number one on the points list. Um, I needed a win, but I felt like I could do it at that point. Uh, but, you know, Ben Cole played really well that week, and mm. um, I finished half-decent at 20th, and... You know, I was I was happy with where I'd stand it and knew that, you know, as long as I get on a PGA tour and give myself a chance, um, you know, we'll just have to see what happens. Looking back at all those years on tours overseas, how do you think that has shaped you as a golfer now? I read in another interview that uh you said that you would have loved to have qualified at twenty three, ten years earlier, but do you think you <laughs> perhaps would have been ready then perhaps were you better prepared now after all that experience uh overseas uh yes i definitely would have loved to have qualified when i was 23 um but if i look back on it now i would have to have the knowledge i have now to have probably played well at that age um you know at back then there was a lot of times where you know i would you know, make equipment changes or just make swing changes when I shouldn't have and um, didn't really know how to compete at the highest of levels, but traveling throughout the world, playing, like I said, with some of the best players in the world um, gave me more experience, more knowledge. Um, I knew, you know, what I needed to do, what what I couldn't do. And so uh, without, yeah, without all those years of experience, I honestly don't know if I would would have been in this position um, if I had lacked all of those uh, uh, experiences. Do you think you'll therefore get to 
just enjoy it more, that perhaps there'll be slightly less pressure than if you had been 23, that you can appreciate what you have now? Yes, absolutely. I think that if I had made the tour at 23, it would have been pressure packed. I'm sure some of the younger, uh, you know, guys on tour are dealing with it now. Um, like Tom Kim, I'm sure, you know, there's so many high standards for him. The bar was set so high. Um, and don't get me wrong. He's been performing unbelievably, um, great player, great guy, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know for me personally at, if I'd made the tour at that age, I'm not sure if I could have dealt with, you know, the outside pressure that was coming in. Um, so right now, like I said, uh, I'm just happy to be on the tour, um, feel truly blessed and just looking to see what I can do with this opportunity. And um, like I said, I'm hoping just for a long, steady career on the PGA Tour. Right. So that was going to be my last question as well. Now that you're on the tour, what do you hope to achieve uh, are you really raring to go? Yeah. Um, obviously, the goal is to reach number one in the world. That I think that's every golfer's dream. And if you're not, if that's not your dream, I don't think that you have any business playing professional golf. Um, you know, I, I definitely love to win. I, I I've said this in Japan too, where I would love to win on average a tournament per year um, until whenever my career finishes, and. Um, this year especially, I would definitely like to – the minimum would be finish inside the top 50 on a FedEx Cup points to uh, have access to the elevated events next next year and all the majors. Um, but the top priority goal is to try and get inside the top 30 to make the Tour Championship. So um, that would definitely be one of the biggest goals for this year. So it seems like there's still fire in you, it seems. Uh, there sure is. Um, I'm not going to go down without a fight. I'm, I'm here and to compete and, and win golf tournaments. So, um, yeah, there's no, you won't see any back down from me. Um, I'm going to give it my all until the last putt drops on 18 for every tournament. And, um, you know, we'll start. That can take me. Well, that's amazing to hear. Uh, we're out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. But it's been fantastic to uh, get to know you on the show today. We wish you all the best on the tour this year. And certainly we hope you enjoy it as well. We've been speaking to the latest PGA Tour rookie, Chan Kim. Thank you once again for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on and thanks for your time. And that's where we close out our show today. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-wo. And thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.